Good evening, my friends, and welcome to Numa. This is the latest installment of my series, Fall Asleep With Me, a series by which I hope to ease your transition from wakefulness to sleep. My voice, as strong a soporific as any you'll find behind the counter of your local pharmacy, is all but guaranteed to guide you to sleep. And as a perfectly natural remedy to spare you the undesirable side effects of those little chemical tablets for which we've become too conditioned to reach. Should it fail to do so, you'll have nonetheless enjoyed, as a compensatory gift, some of the finest literature ever written. This evening's episode, to which we'll dedicate the next half hour or so, is Charles Dickens' timeless masterpiece, A Tale of Two Cities. Settle your mind. Turn down or off the brightness of your screen. Close your eyes. Concentrate on two things. Your breath. and the sound of my voice. Tomorrow morning, when you wake, subscribe to this channel and leave a five-star rating. Assuming, of course, we consummate our time together with sleep. Without further ado, Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities.
It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil. In the superlative degree of comparison only, There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a fair face on the throne of France. In both countries it was clearer than crystal to the Lord of the state preserves of loaves and fishes, that things in general were settled forever. It was the year of our Lord, 1,775. Spiritual revelations were conceded to England at that favorite period, as at this. Mrs. Southcott had recently attained her five-and-twentieth blessed birthday, of whom a prophetic private in the lifeguards had heralded the sublime appearance by announcing that arrangements were made for the swallowing up of London and Westminster. Even the Cock Lane ghost had been laid only a round dozen of years. After wrapping out its messages, as the spirits of this very year last passed, supernaturally deficient in originality, wrapped out theirs.
Jesus. Mere messages in the earthly order of events had lately come to the English crown and people from a congress of British subjects in America, which, strange to relate, have proved more important to the human race than any communications yet received through any of the chickens of the Cock Lane brood. France, less favored on the whole as to matter spiritual than her sister of the shield and trident, rolled with exceeding smoothness downhill making paper money and spending it. Under the guidance of her Christian pastors, she entertained herself, besides, with such humane achievements as sentencing a youth to have his hands cut off, his tongue torn out with pincers, and his body burned alive because he had not kneeled down in the rain to do honor to a dirty procession of monks which passed within his view at a distance of some fifty or sixty yards. It is likely enough that rooted in the woods of France and Norway. There were growing trees. When that sufferer was put to death, already marked by the woodman, fate, to come down and be sawn into boards, to make a certain movable framework with a sack and a knife in it, terrible in history. It is likely enough that in the rough outhouses of some tillers of the heavy lands adjacent to Paris, there were sheltered from the weather that very day rude carts bespattered with rustic mire snuffed about by pigs and roosted in by poultry, which the farmer Death had already set apart to be his tumbrils of the revolution. But that woodman and that farmer, though they work unceasingly, work silently, and no one heard them as they went about with muffled tread. The rather, for as much as to entertain any suspicion that they were awake, was to be atheistical and traitorous. In England, 
there was scarcely an amount of order and protection to justify much national boasting. Daring burglaries by armed men and highway robberies took place in the capital itself every night. Families were publicly cautioned not to go out of town without removing their furniture to upholsterers' warehouses for security. The highwayman in the dark was a city tradesman in the light, and, being recognized and challenged by his fellow tradesmen, whom he stopped in his character of the captain, gallantly shot him through the head and rode away. The mail was waylaid by seven robbers, and the guard shot three dead, and then got shot dead himself by the other four in consequence of the failure of his ammunition, after which the mail was robbed in peace. That magnificent potentate, the Lord Mayor of London, was made to stand and deliver on Turnham Green by one highwayman, who despoiled the illustrious creature in sight of all his retinue. Prisoners in London jails fought battles with their turnkeys, and the majesty of the law fired blunderbusses in among them, loaded with rounds of shot and ball. Thieves snipped off diamond crosses from the necks of noble lords at court drawing-rooms. Musketeers went into St. Giles's to search for contraband goods, and the mob fired on the musketeers, and the musketeers fired on the mob, and nobody thought any of these occurrences much out of the common way. In the midst of them, the hangman, ever busy and ever worse than useless, was in constant requisition. Now, stringing up long rows of miscellaneous criminals, now, hanging a housebreaker on Saturday who had been taken on Tuesday, now, burning people in the land at Newgate by the dozen, and now burning pamphlets at the door of Westminster Hall. Today, taking the life of an atrocious murderer, and tomorrow, of a wretched pilferer who had robbed a farmer's boy of six pence. All these things, and a thousand like them, came to pass in 
and close upon the dear old year 1775. Environed by them, while the woodman and the farmer worked unheeded, those two of the large jaws, and those other two of the plain and the fair faces, trod with stir enough, and carried their divine rights with a high hand. Thus did the year 1,775 conduct their greatnesses and myriads of small creatures, the creatures of this chronicle among the rest, along the roads that lay before them. It was the Dover Road that lay on a Friday night late November before the first of the persons with whom this history has business. The Dover Road lay, as to him, beyond the Dover Mail, as it lumbered up Shooter's Hill he walked uphill in the mire by the side of the mail, as the rest of the passengers did. And not because they had the least relish for walking exercise under the circumstances, but because the hill and the harness and the mud and the mail were all so heavy that the horses had three times already come to a stop, besides once drawing the coach across the road, with the mutinous intent of taking it back to Blackheath. Reins and whip and coachman and guard, however, in combination, had read that article of war which forbade a purpose otherwise strongly in favor of the argument, that some brute animals are endued with reason, and that the team had capitulated and returned to their duty. With drooping heads and tremulous tails, they mashed their way through the thick mud, floundering and stumbling between whiles as if they were falling to pieces at the larger joints. As often as the driver rested them and brought them to a stand with a wary, whoa ho, so-ho then, the near leader violently shook his head and everything upon it like an unusually emphatic horse denying that the coach could be got up the hill whenever the leader made this rattle the passenger started as a nervous passenger might 
and was disturbed in mind. There was a steaming mist in all the hollows, and it had roamed in its forlornness up the hill like an evil spirit, seeking rest and finding none. A clammy and intensely cold mist, it made its slow way through the air in ripples that visibly followed and overspread one another, as the waves of an unwholesome sea might do. It was dense enough to shut out everything from the light of the coach lamps, but these its own workings and a few yards of road. And the reek of the laboring horses steamed into it as if they had made it all. Two other passengers, besides the one, were plodding up the hill by the side of the mail. All three were wrapped to the cheekbones and over the ears and wore jackboots. Not one of the three could have said from anything he saw what either of the other two was like, and each was hidden under almost as many wrappers from the eyes of the mind as from the eyes of the body of his two companions. In those days, travelers were very shy of being confidential on a short notice for anybody on the road might be a robber or in league with robbers. As to the latter, when every posting house and alehouse could produce somebody in the captain's pay, ranging from the landlord to the lowest stable nondescript, it was the likeliest thing upon the cards. So the guard of the Dover Mail thought to himself, that Friday night in November, 1,775, lumbering up Shooter's Hill as he stood on his own particular perch behind the mail, beating his feet, and keeping an eye and a hand on the arm chest before him, where a loaded blunderbuss lay at the top of six or eight loaded horse pistols, deposited on a substratum of cutlass. Dover mail was in its usual genial position that the guard suspected the passengers. The passengers suspected one another and the guard. They all suspected everybody else. 
and the coachman was sure of nothing but the horses. As to which cattle he could with a clear conscience have taken his oath on the two testaments that they were not fit for the journey. Whoa, said the coachman. So, then, one more pull and you're at the top and be damned to you, for I have had trouble enough to get you to it. Joe? Hello, the guard replied. What o'clock do you make it, Joe? Ten minutes, good Past eleven. My blood, ejaculated the vexed coachman. And not a top of shooters yet? Tis, yeah, get on with you. The emphatic horse, cut short by the whip in a most decided negative, made a decided scramble for it. And the three other horses followed suit. Once more, the Dover Mail struggled on, with the jackboots of its passengers squashing along by its side. They had stopped when the coach stopped, and they kept close company with it. If any one of the three had had the hardihood to propose to another to walk on a little ahead into the mist and darkness, he would have put himself in a fair way of getting shot instantly as a highwayman. The last burst carried the mail to the summit of the hill. The horses stopped to breathe again, and the guard got down to skid the wheel for the descent, and to open the coach door to let the passengers in. Tsst, Joe, cried the coachman in a warning voice looking down from his box. What do you say, Tom? They both listened. I say a horse at a canter coming up, Joe. I say a horse at a gallop, Tom, returned the guard, leaving his hold of the door and mounting nimbly to his place. Gentlemen, in the king's name, all of you. With this hurried adjuration, he cocked his blunderbuss and stood on the offensive. The passenger booked by this history was on the coach step, getting in. The other two passengers were close behind him and about to follow. 
he remained on the step, half in the coach and half out of it. They remained in the road below him. They all looked from the coachman to the guard, and from the guard to the coachman and listened. The coachman looked back and the guard looked back and even the emphatic leader picked up his ears and looked back without contradicting. The stillness consequent on the cessation of the rumbling and laboring of the coach added to the stillness of the night, made it very quiet indeed. panting of the horses communicated a tremulous motion to the coach, as if it were in a state of agitation. The hearts of the passengers beat loud enough perhaps to be heard, but at any rate, the quiet pause was audibly expressive of people out of breath and holding the breath, and having the pulses quickened by expectation. With that, we conclude this episode of Fall Asleep With Me. Visit my channel or my website for more sleep stories with which to ease your Transition into rest. Good night, sweet dreams from Numa. <laughs>